Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. I'm your host, Caleb Friends. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I am thrilled to have you here this week. This week, we are continuing our Liberty Candidate series. Um, and this week, I am bringing on a candidate who is running for the State House in South Carolina. And he's a great Liberty candidate named Britton Wolf. Now, uh, Britton is uh, very, very young, just like um, Jared Cannon was uh, in, in our last edition of, of this series. Um, and I think that is absolutely fantastic. I love bringing on um, young people who are really trying to make a difference with this because it sets the groundwork for things to come. Britton and I talk about uh, a wide variety of of issues and topics, everything from his campaign to how it's going um, and how the political environment is in South Carolina. We talk about guns, the Second Amendment. We talk about taxes. Um, we talk about uh, term limits, the drug war, the, opi the opioid crisis, nullification, and so much more. So without further ado, I will uh, stop talking now and sit back and let you listen to my interview with Britton Wolf running for the South Carolina State House. All right, Britton, uh, welcome to <coughs> Mill Liberty. I am excited to have you on, especially uh, as one of our candidates in the Liberty Candidate Series that we're doing here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Caleb. Thanks for having me on, buddy. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, so I'm really excited um, about uh, getting to know a little bit uh, about you and your candidacy and uh, some of the issues of your state. Why don't you just start with uh, telling us about why you decided to um, run and what what's sort of the, the inspiration and the driving force behind your campaign and then sort of uh, lead into how your campaign is doing right now. Awesome. Okay. Um, well, so I, I initially started thinking about the idea, kind of entertaining the idea, uh, this last year, about August of 2012, uh, 2017, um, there, there was kind of a fallout in, in the state. I, I live in South Carolina and we had what's called the VC summer project. This was a, a nuclear, a, a project, you know, to, to construct two nuclear power plants here in our state. Um, and the, there's, there's a company called SCENG and, and, and uh, Scana and Santee Cooper. You know, these are some of the, the big utility providers in our state and uh, the massive uh, electric providers, you know, creators in our state. And um, they decided to abandon this project. Um, and this ultimately cost us 5,000 jobs. Hmm. Well, that's not really an issue. I mean, it is an issue of losing jobs, but it's not really an issue if it's the private sector deciding that this is something where this is no longer feasible. Right. Well, the issue, though, is there's cronyism written all on this right now. There was a, a bill in 2007 called the Baseload Review Act. And what this did is it allowed the utility providers to essentially have a blank check um, at the expense of ratepayers. And what, they, what it did is it, it forces ratepayers to pay for the construction of these nuclear power plants. And companies like SCE&G have raised rates nine times over the last decade. Um, really, as I started digging deeper and deeper into this, you know, I mean, there's, there's just a, a major stench coming from this. And it, it's just, it was really frustrating and aggravating to me. Um, and then eventually, you know, I found out that my current representative had voted for this piece of legislation. 
you know, really what, what ended up happening is they, they lobbied government for you know, my state government for the ability to pass this bill. And of course, I mean, there's a utility uh, monopoly here in our state where we don't have, you know, a free market system. We, we need really, we need consumer choice. Um, and I, as I started digging deeper into this, you know, I, re- I came to the, I came to the realization that, you know, here in South Carolina, we have the highest electric rates um, of the nation. You know, we, we pay the most in terms of electricity. And really what it comes down to, it comes down to three things. It comes down to, you know, our state's dependency upon electricity. It comes down to our rates being artificially increased. I mean, this is 18% of our power bill goes to pay for these these nuclear power plants. And right now, I mean, this is a, a failed $9 billion project. Well, we've already fronted $2 billion to it, and we're still continuing to pay for it each month. Um, I mean, it's just outstanding to me. And then there, there was, of course, the gas taxes last year that, that ended up getting raised. This is a 12-cent gas tax increase. And, um, of course, you know, my, my opponent is, as he says, he's a conservative, but it's, for some reason, our, our electric rates and our, you know, our cost of living and our taxes continue to go up and up as, as he uh, you know, continues to, to remain in office. And he's voting for it consistently. So really what it comes down to is I, I want to be a voice for liberty and, um, you know, really go after the, the electric monopolies, you know, open it up for a, a free market system here in my state. Um, so <clears throat> you, you alluded to this a little bit. Um, can you define a little bit uh, very specifically about what your um, – philosophy overwhelming uh, driving philosophy is that 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 makes you uh, fight for these things um honestly i just believe in liberty you know and, and uh, i know especially in the liberty movement you know, there kind of has some some degree um a skepticism of you know authority as well as you know i guess um uh, you know organized religion mm-hmm. um but really what it comes down for me i mean i'm a christian Mm-hmm. You know, I believe that that God is the, the the bestower of my rights, and He's the author of my liberty. You know, Second Corinthians chapter three verse seventeen says, "And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty." And ultimately, it's, it's because I believe I'm a son of God. I believe we're all sons of God. That you know, I wanna I wanna be, I guess, entrenched, you know, in the philosophies of liberty. So I've read a lot of a lot of books, especially this last year. I ended up reading seventy two different books, uh, mostly on free market economics. You know. Ludwig von Mises, Marian Rothbard, um, Bastiat, things of that nature. So, all friendly names here. Um, well, how's your how's your campaign doing so far right now? Well, we're off to a great start. So, um, the last quarterly report came out, and I mean, this is a 14 year incumbent that I'm up against. Yeah, and we ended up out fundraising him three to one this last quarter. Um, it kind of plays in my favor. I'm, I'm a 23 year old, so he doesn't really expect much and, right. you know, he, he can't, he doesn't have very much information about me. So it's great. I'm kind of the underdog, but you know, we're, we're really throwing some big punches right now. Um, so far we've already knocked on almost 3000 doors this week. We'll hit about 3,500 doors. Um, and we're, we're hoping to hit at least 15, uh, 15,000 over the next few weeks. So, um, so, so right now you, you are the second, um, a candidate that I've had in this interview series, and, and both candidates that I've had have been incredibly young. Um, and I, I want to ask you the same question I asked uh, the the last candidate. I asked, "What's been the response to how young you are going after such a such a uh, a, a high level office the, the way that uh, the way that you're doing right now? What's been sort of the response by voters?" 
Well, it really depends, I guess, on the demographic. Um, if you look at kind of that, let's see here, probably about that 30 to 55 range, there's kind of some skepticism. Yeah. They kind of ask, you know, what what qualifies you for the position? You right. know, do you have a law degree? You know, why why are you running? Why should I pick you over your incumbent, not the incumbent? Um, but then if you look kind of at the, at the 18 to 25 and then the, would you say, I guess the 56 to about 90, you know, yeah. they, they kind of look at it and they go, wow, that's so awesome that you're doing this. You know, I, I want to support you. I like what you're doing. You know, I, we need more young people involved in politics and, and influencing policy, trying to make things better. So it's, it's interesting the kind of the, the shift there. So yeah, why, it's kind of a harder think, sell. Why, why do you think that, uh, that older demographic is so supportive? Well, I think especially um, looking at, you know, what's going on, going on in Florida, you know, I think there's a lot of young people kind of coming out anti, you know, the Second Amendment, anti our rights, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the older generation is kind of just seeing that and feeling overwhelmed. You know, they're thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, what where's the hope, you know, for for people after us, you know, promoting ideals of liberty and you know natural rights, things of that nature. Um, and I think, you know, when they, they see a, a young person who's engaged in politics, who understands the policies and understands, you know, the issues, they, they kind of feel kind of that relief and that, that sense of hope. And they think, oh, okay, you know what, this might, there might still be something here. So it's kind of refreshing for them. Right, right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the, um, the political environment and, and sort of the atmosphere around what what issues really matter to, to people in, in South Carolina for, for those who aren't from the area or, or just don't know in general? Yeah, so right now the biggest issue I'm, I'm finding is probably roads. Um, <laughs> perfect. It's a, we it's have, a perfect libertarian issue. To <laughs> exactly. My roads, right? Right. <laughs> Really, uh, really, the biggest thing for me, actually, with, in terms of roads, is you know we need more accountability. I mean, I, I definitely would like to see kind of the roads privatized, but you know I want to be more pragmatic. You right. know, right now we have a broken system. We need more accountability of the South Carolina Department of Transportation. Um, Representative Jonathan Hill, he's from District Eight. He, he's a guy that I really want to work with. He's certainly you know the, if you would, the Liberty guy or the you know the Ron Paul of South Carolina. Um, you know, he consistently votes no on bad bills and I mean, everybody hates him for it. It's awesome. (laughs) But, uh, what, um, the, the, in 2017, you know, he was a big opponent of the gas tax being increased. So prior to the gas tax being increased, you know, it was, our gas tax was 16.75 cents a gallon. Now over the next, I want to say five or six years, it's going to increase, you know, two cents each year. Um, and it, I mean, it's, this is, this is a big thing. It's, it's going to be, once it takes full effect, it'll be 28.75 cents a gallon. Our gas tax will be, hmm. um, and I mean, that, that's outstanding. It's, it's huge. Um, and it, it's interesting, you know, I talk to people, they, they go, well, I'm glad they, they raised the gas tax. You know, we need to fix our roads. And it, it's interesting when you're able to kind of take it back and say, you know what? I a hundred percent agree with you. We need qual- good quality roads. But we need more accountability in the South Carolina Department of Transportation. Jonathan Hill referenced uh, a statistic. You know, this is absolutely staggering. He says that only 46% of all the money collected for the roads actually goes to the road maintenance. Wow. There's so much waste in our in our state government, and we need you know we need more accountability. Um, I think we need what we need, really need to do is we need to reform the South Carolina Department of Transportation. 
right now they're held accountable by the, um, if you will, the state legislature. So, you know, over 170 members of the General Assembly. Rather than having it that way, I think we need to make it an actual cabinet position of the governor. And the way, you know, and then, then from there, I mean, it's easier for us as, as citizens, you know, to um, hold one man accountable opposed to, you know, 170 people accountable. So, Is that message of, uh, of, of accountability um, and uh, sort of reduction of waste, reduction of spending, um, and not just and not just transportation, but in in any area, is that message something that that people seem to agree with and, and resonate with uh, more than than a gas tax, for instance? Absolutely, especially once you're able to explain that to the average voter, then they go, "Oh, actually, maybe I don't agree with the gas tax." Right. But you know, right now in South Carolina, we're having a major issue with ethics, um, and we definitely need some ethics reform. I'll be honest, I don't know how to fix that. That's one thing that I'm kind of researching, I'm trying to figure out. Um, but, you know, I think we need better quality people in, in government, you know, people representing us. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, ethics is a, a major issue right now, especially in South Carolina. You know, we have one of the most corrupt state governments um, in the nation. And, you know, it's just, it's sad and it's disheartening. But, you know, that's one thing that a lot of voters are also talking about is, you know, ethics reform, you know, cutting back the, the corruption in Columbia. So... Um, so let's let's talk about a few uh, specific issues. Um, I, I do want to sort of pick your brain on on a few different things. Um, I would like mm -hmm. to start about with um, with with the Second Amendment and and guns. Um, this is sort of my sort of my uh, softball question because I, I sort of get the idea of where most people stand whenever I'm bringing them on this, but um, sort of the specifics is what I I, I kind of want to get into. Obviously. Uh, gun control and and the and the gun debate is very hot right now. It's very um, emotion driven and and there's a lot of passion on both sides. Uh, first of all, where what's your overarching uh, idea of what the Second Amendment means to you? And then we'll we'll go uh, further after that. Well, I mean, first off, I mean, I, I realize I recognize that gun control doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at, for instance, our prisons, we can't keep weapons, we can't keep drugs, we can't keep any of it out of our prisons. And these are high security prisons. I don't understand how individuals think that we can, you know, prevent guns from being on the streets. You know, you're just essentially creating, um, you know, a black market or a uh, you're increasing the demand for, you know, this, this, uh, what would you say, this, uh, this item, you know, yeah, guns. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I mean, right now, I'm, I'm definitely in favor of constitutional carry, you know, where individuals can carry, you know, open or conceal carry without needing permission from government. You know, I think ultimately our rights come from God or from our creator, as Thomas Jefferson writes in the Declaration of Independence. And for that reason, you know, I don't think you need to ask permission from government to exercise a right. And South Carolina does not have that right now, correct? No. So we had a bill come up a couple... I want to say back in 2016 or 2017. Uh, actually, no, I think it was 2017. It was called, um, and Jonathan Hill, like, again, referencing Jonathan Hill, he was one of the big proponents of this. Um, and, you know, it, it, it died. It kind of, it's sad that this is happening, especially in what's considered to be a conservative state. Right. Um, you know, where we have a majority in the House, the Senate, and the governor is a Republican. So it's just frustrating how that works. 
do you, do you think that's just political gridlock on why why it's it's hard to get Republicans behind that, or if it, is it just you know the the way of the beast, um, just just uh, government draining people's integrity or, or ideology, or oh, why do you think that is that it's so difficult to uh, to get something like that passed? Well, really, I think it, what it comes down to is it's just politicians playing political games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I look at what happened with that specific incident. You know, it's a lot. There's a lot of different opinions on it. Um, some people were frustrated with Jonathan, you know, Representative Hill for the the way that he did this. He was one of the the main sponsors of this bill, and there were a number of other sponsors with him. And uh, he pushed it for. Well, he pushed for a. Um, he threw it on the the uh, the House floor a little early, um, and uh, you know, of course. He didn't tell anybody else because he knew they were gonna they were gonna be anti his right. his initiative. And what he did is he he tried to get a vote to get everybody that was in favor of this bill. He, he knew it was gonna pass. It's not gonna pass because the speaker of the house isn't in favor of this stuff. And um, what he ended up doing is he he forced it to vote. Now after he did that, um, all of his sponsors dropped off the bill. They said we don't want to be a part of this bill. And they were frustrated with him because I said, you know, you killed your bill. Ultimately, what he ended up doing with this bill is he forced a vote to get people, you know, voting in favor of constitutional carry in the Second Amendment and to get a vote for people that are against it. And that's ultimately what it came down to. And it was great because, you know, some other people in our state, liberty-minded individuals, were able to apply political pressure on those people that voted incorrectly on this bill by, you know, going to their constituents, sending out mailers saying, look, your representative voted against your Second Amendment right. Um, and so it's interesting how that ended up working out. There were a number of people that were just furious about it, especially in the House. when um, really, they, I mean, they, they didn't vote for it because of political games. They were frustrated that he pushed that to go to, go to vote early. Um, and they ended up passing another bill that was, I want to say it was sponsored by the NRA, it was kind of more of a watered-down version of the bill, um, and that one did pass because I mean there was so much political upset because everyone voted against you know the Second Amendment and they're voting against constitutional carry. Um, it was just frustrating. It's really aggravating how that worked out. Right. Is is that something that would uh, be a top priority for you to try to to get through a piece of legislation that you would like to see get passed if if you were to win this fall? Absolutely. I mean, constitutional carry, it's a no-brainer for me. You know, like as I mentioned before, you don't need a right. I mean, you don't need to ask permission from government to exercise a right. And that's really what it comes down to. Um, So a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about how to fix uh, school shootings um, and just shootings in in general. Um, And one of the ideas that has been a lot of times it's either uh, you know it's it's going after the guns or it's making schools like a fortress where every everything is is locked down um, and I, I see obviously there there are obvious issues in both of that is there any sort of solution that that you could possibly see I know South Carolina has had um, a, a couple shootings in the past years uh, that that has taken national headlines. Um, is there any sort of solution that you see um, to mass shootings, specifically school shootings, but not limited to? Yeah, I think one thing that would be great is more education in terms of you know gun handling and how you know what to do when you see a gun. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, especially, you know, growing up at, at about the age of six or seven, my parents started kind of teaching us about guns, you know, guns are in our home and, and it was important for us to learn, you know, how to handle a gun if, if we ever see one. Um, I can remember my parents doing a, a kind of a little trick with us, kind of just, they, uh, they kind of explained to us, you know, what guns were and they, they talked to us about it and they said, you know, if you ever see one, go, you'll come get an adult, check it and make sure it's not loaded and then come get an adult. Well, they, they set one down in um, our playroom, actually. There was no ammunition in it. There wasn't a magazine or anything. Um, and they, they just set it there just to see, you know, how we would react. And it was interesting, you know, being seven years old, I grabbed my brother and I said, hey, there's a gun here. Let's go get mom and tell her. I don't know why it's out. And, like, I didn't understand. I can remember being pretty confused. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at that young age, I learned, you know, that we need to respect guns, that they're an awesome tool. They're, you know, they're definitely for self-defense. But, you know, there's something to be respected and, you know, you need to understand how to use one. Um, and that was something, you know, my, my family has really taught me. And I think that was awesome. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's sad that other kids don't have that, that same experience. You know, really their only experience with guns is, you know, maybe a video game or something. Right. Uh, or, you know, what they see on TV. I think we should definitely be implementing some more education on, you know, gun safety as well as how to operate and handle a gun, you know, in the classroom. That's one thing that we used to have, and you know, I, I, back in you know the '60s and '70s, I mean the '60s and you know the early '40s, '30s, right. I would like to see that come back. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, in, in terms of protecting students and you know the lives of individuals, I think we shouldn't be restricting teachers' ability to, you know, exercise their Second Amendment right. You know, if they want to conceal carry, I think they should have the ability to, you know, especially if they can back, pass a background check and they're legally able to, or even. Um, you know, if, it, if it's just administration, you know, wh- whatever it is, let's get kind of the ball rolling towards, you know, having more guns around in, in society. So ultimately an armed society is a polite society. Right. Um, is, are, are, are these ideas that, that you're talking about right now, um, popular with, with your constituents in, in South Carolina? You know, that's actually one thing I haven't really talked to constituents about, you know, um, in terms of of school safety in that that way mm-hmm. um I, i've talked to a few people you know as as i kind of figure out they're a little more gun friendly yeah i've talked to them about it and they're they're all for it they think it's a great idea well that's fantastic um moving on to to some other some other policy uh questions um <laughs> i i do want to talk a little bit about taxes um mm-hmm. what is sort of the the general vibe of you know what what kind of tax system do you have in south carolina now and what would you do to uh reform it well ultimately i, I like to get i mean ultimately i would like to get to a a system where we're 100 percent you know voluntary contributions right yeah uh, that's not very realistic that's something we've got to be a little more pra- pragmatic about it's not going to happen today tomorrow or even you know three decades from now yeah um but that's definitely something I would like to start pushing forward. The way that I think we start doing that is by simple, by you know, slowly kind of decreasing the, uh, or I guess, I guess diminishing the tax system. So right now, you know, our, our current sales tax is six percent. You know, I'd like to cut it back to three percent. You know, I'd like to cut back, you know, the business tax and and you know a number of different taxes, especially the the income and property taxes here in the state of South Carolina. Is is the income tax? Because I know there are several states that have just completely done away with the uh, with the income tax. Uh, Texas comes to mind. I believe Florida. 
Um, is is that something that you would be interested in in proposing uh, if you win? Oh, was that like a full repeal of the income tax? In in your state, yes. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Um, what about uh, the the opioid crisis is is sort of sweeping the nation, um, and it's it's affecting everyone in in different ways. Um, how has it really affected South Carolina um, in in your area, and where do you see the problem stems from? Um, and also, what are some possible uh, solutions that you have been um, considering? Well, I, I definitely have seen, you know, there have been a number of different talks at different churches and kind of meetings about it here. I've, I've talked to a few medical professionals, you know, nurses and doctors, as I'm door knocking and and they're definitely talking about opioids, saying, you know, this is a big problem, this is a crisis, and we need some kind of reform. You know, we need legislation. I don't know that legislation is really the fix. I think really what we need is, you know, more more medical cannabis. I think that would be great as an alternative. Um, there was actually a, a bill up for vote called the South Carolina uh, Compassionate Care Act. Um, it ended up dying in, dying in um, I want to say the Judicial Review, but I, I know there's another bill right now that's either the South Carolina um, Compassionate Care Act or it's very similar to that in the Senate, I want to say. Um, and right now I'm, I'm hoping that that's able to pass because I, mean, I, I would. I would really like to see you know, some more medical cannabis or alternative forms of medicine you know, to help individuals that are suffering or hurting. So, mm-hmm. how, how big of a role do you think the war on drugs plays into the opioid crisis? Um, honestly, I, I think it definitely promotes it. It definitely builds it up. Um, you know, I'm definitely not in favor of the, the prohibition, you know, prohibition laws. Mm-hmm. You know, we've definitely seen how that, that hasn't worked in the past and how it actually increases, you know, that, um, you know, the desire, I guess, to do something, you know, so it's kind of just human nature, you know, to say, well, you can't do something. Okay. Well, I want to do it. So, right. What are your thoughts on term limits? Um, is that at the state or the national level? Well, on the on the state level for for, okay. for the purposes of this interview anyway. Okay, good, good. Um, I would definitely be in favor of term limits at the state level. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I'll be honest, I kind of flip-flop on this issue. This is one that I'm, I see good arguments on both sides about yeah. this. Um, you know, one thing I, I think of, you know, if we were to have term limits, you know, I think of people like Ron Paul, for instance, you know, he was a, a member of the the House of Representatives and the, the nation, you know, the National Congress um, for, what, 20, 22 years, something mm-hmm. of that nature. And, you know, if we had had term limits, we would have lost, you know, great men like Ron Paul. You know, who's coming in to fill these guys' spots? Well, ultimately, the cronies of the individuals that we're trying to kick out. Right. So I think that's that's kind of the, the thing that I, I look at. I go, I don't know if I really support it, but at the same time, you know, I think at the state level, it might be beneficial, you know, just to have some new faces, some fresh people in. Right now, my opponent has ran essentially unopposed for, uh, he's, been, he's been in for 14 years. This last cycle, he had one opponent. And, you know, this cycle, he has three right now. There's myself and, and another individual. So it's just interesting kind of seeing how that works. I think really, um, really, I think, you know, as individuals, we have a responsibility to be that if you would, term limit for the politicians. So really, if, if we want to see that, um, you know, we want to see term limits, well, we need to start voting our guys out of office. Um, that's definitely something my opponent has really 
talked a lot about and he's tried to, to push forward. But of course, you know, ironically enough, he's surf for 14 years and he's trying to surf for another two years so he's not term living himself it's just interesting right yeah I, and i think term limits is something that really is one of those issues that really divides um a lot of people in the liberty community because it's it's somewhat murky um mm-hmm. so so i'm always interested in in especially with with you know, individuals like yourself who are running for public office, where where the vibe is um, uh, among Liberty individuals running for for office, uh, and and how they would like to pursue that. So that, that's always something that's that's interested me. Uh, something else that that is uh, very interesting that I I don't think is really getting enough conversation started mm-hmm. about is uh, nullification. Um, and I think that could potentially be a very useful tool uh, against um, any sort of unconstitutional acts uh, perpetrated by the federal government. Where do you uh, stand on nullification, and and how would you sort of use that uh, if if you were if you were to be elected? Yeah, definitely. If you could, you know, why don't you give me a kind of a walkthrough of nullification? I- I mean, I've heard the term a few times. I've read about it. I can't remember exactly what that means. So I'll be honest with you. Yeah. So nullification is basically just the the states, uh, or really any level of government, um, just saying no. We're not cooperating with this. We're not. We're not doing this mandate. Um, like for example, a perfect example of this, I think, would be uh, states like Colorado, basically nullifying federal. Uh, marijuana laws that say, look, we're not enforcing this. It's going to be legal in our state. If you want to crack down on, on marijuana, you have to use federal resources. The states, our, our state is not going to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I got you. I got you. Um, I'm definitely a big proponent of the 10th Amendment. I think we need you know, more states willing to stand up against the, you know, the federal government when they're, they're out of line. You know, the Constitution outlines everything the state, the, the federal, federal government is able to do. And, you know, we, we're definitely seeing instances where the government is overstepping its bounds. Um, and when it is doing so, you know, we have, I think, especially at the state level, you know, state legislators have a responsibility to stand up and say, you know what, you need to back off. You need to go back and you know, read the Constitution, understand what your responsibilities are, because you're not following them right now. Um, you're overstepping your bounds. So definitely, definitely a, a fan of that, and I think that would be a great tool for, you know, preventing, I guess, tyrannical over overreach, right, from our federal government. Right. Um, I think one of the one of the bigger uh, kicks about that is that a lot of people uh, in state legislatures or governors um, are scared to use that tool because they're afraid of losing federal funds. Which is the obvious knee-jerk reaction if 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 states aren't going to do something that the federal government would uh, would want? Um, would that be something that would worry you if 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 federal funds uh, stopped flowing into the state? Is that something that you would hope to see maybe a slow reduction instead of a cold stop? Uh, you know, cold turkey stop uh, of federal funds, and and how would you go about that? Well, I definitely think that we need to cut back on that. Um, you know, government should not be buying the states, and it definitely shouldn't be buying their support with our money. 
Um, I think more of the money should stay at the at the state level opposed to the federal government level. Um, you know, I think definitely that would that would definitely be, have a huge impact. Um, but at the same time, I think it might provide an opportunity for the states to reevaluate their budget, reevaluate you know their needs and necessities, mm-hmm. as well as you know become more fiscally responsible. So I think it, it could play definitely in, um, in our favor to some degree. You know, I look at South Carolina. This last year, we had a well. This session, actually, you know, they voted for a. It was like a 1.2 billion dollar increase to the state budget. You know, well, how are we going to pay for that? You know, that and that's really what it comes down to. Right. We need more fiscal responsibility, especially from individuals that call themselves, you know, conservative or, um, you know, fiscally responsible. Um, so, what is the biggest threat do you see uh, to liberty in your state? Well, I think right now, um, one of the big things I think right now is, you know, our economic freedom, our economic liberty right now is definitely um, it's at threat right now um, with the whole SCNG and and um, SCANA and this this Basel Review Act. What's going on right now with our electric rates? I mean, this is, like I said, this was nine times over the last decade. And right now they're talking about a deal with a electric company up in Virginia called Dominion. Now, what they're planning on doing is they're planning on actually coming in and buying SEG. And if they were to, I mean, I'm sorry, not SEG, Scana, which is the, I guess, the uh, umbrella company of, of SEG. And if they were to do this, I mean, they would incur, you know, a couple billion dollars in debt. And they would, of course, absorb the debt that Scana and SEG currently hold. And I mean, they're just going to continue to raise rates. And that's the big thing that's really frustrating me is, you know, individuals being promised a, a product and then the company is deciding, you know what, we're not going to come by follow through with that. And it's really frustrating to me, I guess, really the, the big thing is, is the legislation, the way it was written. It, I mean, directly says the ratepayer should pay for this and it says, quote, upon completion or abandonment. And that's the biggest thing for me. You know, we need we need more economic freedom. We need more consumer choice, especially in the market. We need less, you know, government regulation. Um, so that's really what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of economic freedom being kind of taken advantage of or or um, restricted. So I guess on the flip side of that, what do you see is the um, the greatest opportunity for liberty in in, in the uh, in the years to come? Well, I definitely think you know, it would be socially, um, social liberty. I think, um, you know, as we talked about, um, you know, the Second Amendment and constitutional carry. But uh, then there's also, you know, medical cannabis. I think that's definitely something that people in South Carolina are in support of. It's just, are we able to get the, the lobbyists and the, you know, the politicians involved with this? Can we get them on board? Right. So, And that's something, especially if it's in in a state like South Carolina that I would imagine is very uh, socially conservative. Mm-hmm. If, if that's something that can happen there, then that's the, the, the possibility of it happening elsewhere is, is very promising. Yep, absolutely. Um, so a few questions before we wind down here. I, I want to talk, uh, sort of bring it full circle and, um, and talk a little bit about you specifically. First question is, what, uh, what, what sort of book has had the, the biggest impact and influence in your life? Shoot. <laughs> That's a hard question. <laughs> um, or or, or the greatest so influence on your ideology. 
Yeah, I mean, there. I'll be honest, man. There's so many. I um, this last year, I mean, I, like I said, I read 72 different books. Um, oh wow! I think so. One thing that I think was well, one book that was really really impactful to me was uh, the Red Scarf Girl and the Cultural Revolution. It's about the Cultural Revolution of you know China when Chairman Mao stepped in and and kind of took things over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we see very a, a number of similarities, you know, between the Red Scarf Girl and, and Chairman Mao's, you know, student activist led kind of revolution and, and his cultural revolution. We're seeing that kind of today, you know, when we're seeing it in our schools, we're seeing it, especially in our universities, where, you know, they're trying to limit speech, they're trying to, you know, uh, if you would restrict, you know, individuals that, you know, are, are white males, you know, they say, well, you don't have an opinion because, you don't understand the the needs of the minorities, you know. Well, there were very similar similar arguments proposed, you know, at that time, saying, "Well, your uh, your family is a capitalist. You come from a family of capitalists, so you don't understand the needs of the proletariat. You know, your voice doesn't matter." And they would try to shame or or inflict harm on on those individuals or the property. Um, we're definitely seeing that today, and that's that's one thing that it was kind of an eye eye awakening moment for me when I I had read that book. Um, so it's just interesting seeing, you know, the, it, it talks about the, the author I mean, it's an autobiography, um, old biography, and she's, she's kind of telling her story of what's happening or how, how it happened. And she kind of goes a little bit into her thoughts, like her personal thoughts. It was interesting. There were points where, I mean, she was contemplating turning her family into, you know, the state police, things of that, that nature. Hmm. So it's just, it's fascinating seeing the the shift and the, the change that individuals can incur um, when put into that that kind of situation. Um, then, of course, I mean, a classic is The Law by Frederick Bastiat. Um, I mean, that's just, uh, that's a, absolutely, that's like a 101. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, what what individual or, uh, you know, you can, you can say, I guess a couple individuals um, has had uh, the biggest impact on, on your a way of thinking in your philosophy and your ideology? I would say um, probably Ezra Taft Benson. So he's not really well known by a lot of people, especially in the liberty movement. Um, he was a former leader of, of the church that I attend. I'm, I'm LDS. Um, and I mean, he his writings are just absolutely phenomenal. He has a book called, it's actually a pamphlet, it's about 34 pages or so. And it's called The Proper Rule of Government. Um, and in there, I mean, he, he literally, without saying it, you know, he outlines how, you know, taxation is theft and how, you know, it's a violation of our property rights, things of that nature. It's just, it was really fascinating. It's been very impactful for me, you know, seeing somebody, I guess in my, in my church, you know, there's very much a, a conservative, uh, mindset, right. Mm-hmm. And, or kind of establishment to some degree. And, you know, it's interesting to see, you know, this is an individual that's a member of my church who's a leader in, within my church and, you know, his writings have been very, if you were more libertarian leaning or, you know, liberty minded. So for me, that's been awesome. I got to say, that's probably the most unique, uh, most people will say like Ron Paul or Rand Paul or, you know, somebody like that, which are very good answers, but uh, that's, that's probably one of the most uh, unique uh, responses to that question that I've got. So I'll, I'll be sure to, to, um, to link to any of, of his work in the show notes, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and finally, 
Where can people find your website, find out more about your campaign, um, and then where can people find you on social media if, if they want to reach out to you or want to help out? Yeah, so one, one thing you can do is you can go to BrittonWolf.com. That's B-R-I-T-T-O-N-W-O-L-F.com. Um, and that's my website. You know, I have kind of like a donation link. I have you know, where I stand on the issues. I have a number of things up there. Um, as well as, you know, where people can go to volunteer. The other thing is you can find me on Facebook. I'm definitely active on Facebook. Again, my name is Britton Wolf. So B-R-I-T-T-O-N and then W-O-L-F. Sorry about that. Um, and then I also have a, a campaign website, not website, but I do have a campaign website, but campaign Facebook page where you can find me at Britton Wolf for SC District 71. Alrighty, and um, I'll, we'll be sure to link that as well in the show notes. Uh, Britton, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you for allowing me to, to pick your brain a little bit and uh, seeing where, where you stand on, on a few issues. Um, I think what you're doing is, is really important um, because uh, really the state legislature and, and the local levels, those, that's where the real change happens. So, um, so best of luck to you and your campaign. I appreciate it, Caleb. Thank you. Thank you very much. And for those listening, everyone um, can be sure to uh, check out Britain's website, um, see if, if he's, he's the kind of guy that you want to support, as well as follow me on Twitter, at Caleb Franz. Follow the show on Twitter, at Mill Liberty. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes so that you'll never miss an episode or an update. Um, and check us out on Patreon uh, at Outset Network. And until next week, we'll see you.